Good morning. Well, today I hope to finish John chapter 5 and just a quick refresher of the context of the chapter is Jesus has healed a paralytic paralytic man, a man who had been paralyzed almost 40 years. At the beginning of the chapter, he did it. He did the healing on the Sabbath because he's going to create a teaching moment. He specifically chose the Sabbath as opposed to another day. The religious leaders responded as he knew they would, which, is, which was with this attitude of offense. They accused him of violating the Sabbath because we will have no healings on the Sabbath, the religious leaders said. It's not that Jesus violated the Sabbath. It's that he violated their interpretation of the Sabbath, their tradition with respect to the Sabbath because they didn't allow even healings on the Sabbath, but of course the Sabbath was designed for rest from work, from your occupation, from earning a living, but never from healings. So Jesus responds, this is just by way of background before we get to our passage, Jesus responds by saying, it's okay that I healed on the Sabbath because I'm God. And now there's the second offense that they have, which is they claim blasphemy. So they accuse Jesus of being a criminal, of violating the Mosaic law with respect to, <clears throat> excuse me, with respect to the Sabbath, and of violating the Mosaic law with respect to blasphemy because they don't believe that he is God in the flesh. If they had believed it, then they would have fallen down and groveled before him. But they don't believe that he's God, so they say, you're committing blasphemy. What Jesus does, he doesn't double down, he ten times down, if that's even a saying. Right? He then makes ten claims to deity in John chapter 5. He says, let me be crystal clear about who I am. I am God in the flesh. So he makes one claim, they, they assert, they accuse him of blasphemy, so he makes nine more claims to deity in John chapter 5. So that there's no confusion that he is in fact God in the flesh. What he does is he turns the tables on them. First, he makes ten claims to deity. Then he cites the evidence to support his claim to deity. And he refers to the witnesses from the Father validating his claims. He refers to John the Baptist as the first of the witnesses. Then he refers which the Father sent, John the Baptist. Then he refers to the works that the Father gave him to do, the miracles that he gave, that the Father gave Jesus to do. Then Jesus refers to the Father himself as the third of the witnesses who present evidence validating Jesus' claims. And then Jesus refers to the written scriptures as validating his claim, his audacious, unbelievable, incredible claim to be God in the flesh, a claim that if any other man would make, we would have to rightly conclude, to use the words of C.S. Lewis, that he is a lunatic or a liar or Lord himself. And so what Jesus says is the evidence is that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh in the flesh. Then he turns the tables on them. They accuse him of being a criminal. And then in verse 37, he accuses them of offenses before God. He says, you have never heard the Father's voice. You have never seen the Father's form. You do not have the Father's word in you. In verse 38, he said, you do not believe him whom the Father sent. In other words, you don't believe me. In verse 40, he said, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. That is always ultimately the issue. It is an issue of the will. Unbelief is an issue of the will. The atheist who refuses to trust in Christ, it's not that the atheist doesn't get it. It's not that the atheist doesn't understand, assuming they've been given the gospel. It's that they are unwilling. You see, unbelief is a moral decision. Rejection of Christ is a moral decision. It is a decision of the will to not come to Christ. That word unwilling in verse 40 is very important. So then we get to our passage today. Verse 41 of chapter 5 of the Gospel of John reads like this. I do not receive glory from men. The Greek word there for glory is doxa. And doxa or doxa means glory, 
praise, approval. Jesus says here, I don't receive praise from men. He makes a very similar statement in verse 34 when he says, the testimony I received is not from man. What is he talking about? There have been all kinds of people so far in the Gospel of John who have praised him. Men who have praised him. Women who have praised him, right? I mean, John chapter 1, John the Baptist praises Jesus. He describes him as God. The first of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel. In John chapter 1, they call him the Messiah. You don't get better praise than that. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 calls him the Messiah. She calls the men of the city of Sychar there in Samaria, and they recognize that he is Messiah. So what does Jesus, Jesus mean when he says, I don't receive praise from men? And I don't receive testimony from men. He isn't saying that no one gives him praise and that no one honors him with their words. He's saying, I don't seek the praise of men. I don't seek words, flattering words from men, honoring words from men. That's not what I seek. I seek the praise of God. A breathtaking statement. Because when you understand that Jesus is God, the Son, and the flesh, right? God is triune, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when you recognize that Jesus is God, the Son, and the, and the flesh, what we're seeing is that God seeks the praise of God. God is three persons, triune. But we say God is one because they are so united in purpose. So God the Son seeks the praise of God the Father. Yet God the Son is co-equal with the Father, fully God, all of the attributes of God, all of the attributes of deity. Yet He seeks the praise of God the Father. Why? It's the doctrine that we've studied so far in the, in the Gospel of John, the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father. Humility. This is what characterizes God. Your God is humble. That's why it's a great sin for us to be prideful and arrogant. So God the Son submits to God the Father in humility. He submits to His equal. And He even seeks the praise of God the Father. That's what Jesus is saying here. Really what's happening in verse 41 is Jesus is contrasting Himself. Contrasting Himself with the religious leaders. They lusted, craved the praise of men. I mean, it just fed them. It's like food and a meal to them. They craved it, the praise of men. And the praise of God, eh, whatever. It was the praise of men that the religious leaders wanted, and so they were the opposite in terms of motivation, the opposite of Jesus they sought praise from each other rather than from God. Look at verse 44. In verse 44, you see Jesus' words where he says, You receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. The religious leaders were driven by their lust for approval from people, or as some theologians call it, approbation lust. The book of Matthew gives us more detail about this. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. There Jesus is going to warn Israel about the approbation lust, the approval lust that the religious leaders had. They had this insatiable appetite for the people to praise them, and it stroked their pride. And so Jesus, in this courageous act, make no mistake, Jesus is a man of courage, and he is a man who is in complete control of all the events in the Gospels. He's even in control when they brutalize him and crucify him. Jesus, please don't ever believe that lie that Jesus was some sort of helpless, hapless man. He's just kind of being 
led along and he's kind of dazed and confused. You know, they had this image of Jesus. He's, he's kind of chilling and dazed and confused walking through the land of Canaan. Yeah, that's not Jesus. That's the Jesus that Hollywood wants to present to you. Jesus is a man of extreme precision and absolute control and absolute courage. We see this here in Matthew 23, verse 1. There we read, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds. He's going to gut the very source of the approbation, of the approval that the Pharisees crave. He goes right to the heart. They want the crowds to, to, to praise them, so Jesus talks to the crowds and He exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Look at Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to His disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. In other words, obey them. They are in the seat of authority. Obey the law, but don't follow their lust for approval. And now He's going to explain their hypocrisy, their lust for approval. For they say things and do not do them. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. There we go. To be noticed by men. For they broadened their phylacteries. Phylacteries were these little, um, it's like a little case that you carry on the arm and you have some scripture in it. Or a case even on the forehead that they would carry that, that... would have scripture in it. So if it's really big, you say, ooh, I'm really into the Word of God. The bigger the phylactery, the bigger the case on your arm, on your forehead, I want you to know that I'm very godly, that I know the Word. We don't do that today, do we? I'm not saying we shouldn't study the Word. Please don't misunderstand. Absolutely we should study the Word. It's just we shouldn't go around saying, telling, telling everybody, I know so much doctrine. I know so much about the Word. And therefore, you should respect me. Because when we do that, we do what the Pharisees do. We seek the praise of men as opposed to the praise of God. But we'll get to that. Verse 5, But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by men. Rabbi means teacher. Excuse me, in Hebrew. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. He was in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader. Capital L. That is Christ. So there Christ is referring to himself. Verse 11, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, let me be clear about something. Jesus is not saying, don't respect authority. He's not saying, students, don't respect your teachers. He's not saying, don't respect the police officer. He's not saying, don't respect the judge. He's not even saying, don't respect the person who's in government. Jesus shows respect, but at the same time, he points out the hypocrisy. Here's what Jesus is saying in this part of Matthew. His point is, obey your leaders, but don't copy their power lust, their approbation lust their approval, lust. When lust for praise from people, when you have this appetite for the praise of men, you create a monster inside that must continually be fed. You've got to feed the monster. Once you create the monster inside with this appetite for the praise of people, you've got to feed the beast. That's what happens with any type of lust, but here we're talking about approbation lust. You need people to perceive you as righteous, and so you manufacture righteousness. You've got to keep producing it. You've got to keep manufacturing it, because if I want you to think that I'm righteous, which is what the Pharisees are doing, 
I need you to see how righteous I am. And if you don't see it, I need to manufacture it somehow, some way, so that you see my righteousness and you say, attaboy, you're so righteous. Because that's what the appetite is. That's the appetite for the Pharisees. The Pharisees did it back then. We do it today. Okay? I mean, we're throwing tomatoes at the Pharisees right now. I get that. But sometimes we need to look at the mirror and throw a little tomato at ourselves too. I mean, the Pharisees lived in a religious culture. And so what the Pharisees craved was religious righteousness. They manufactured religious righteousness so that the people would praise them. Because that's what the people valued, religious righteousness. So the Pharisees, since they wanted people to praise them, they had to manufacture and produce for themselves religious righteousness. We don't live in a religious society. We used to. 50 years ago, 75 years ago. Our grandparents did. Our great-grandparents did. But we don't live in a religious society, a religious culture anymore. We live in a secular culture. And as secularists, we do the same thing as the Pharisees. We manufacture our own righteousness. The modern social justice warrior wants everybody to know how inclusive they are. We're so diverse... We're so into equity, and when they say equity, by the way, they don't mean fairness, they mean redistribution. You see millions, tens of millions of dollars spent on DEI. You know what DEI is? Diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. Because you have to signal your virtue. Because you have to get praise in a secular culture, you need people to say, yes, you are so diverse. You're so inclusive. That's what the secular culture values because that's their priority. And so in order to get the praise of people, we've got to communicate that we have what they value. Secular righteousness. Really not that different than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Jesus' point is that priority number one must always be to seek God's approval, not people's approval the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Reverse that. Please turn back to John chapter 5. What we're really seeing in John chapter 5 is that Jesus is reading the religious leaders' minds. Remember, He's God. He knows everything. He always has. That's what omniscience means. Jesus knows their motivations. Here's where it gets kind of tricky. The religious leaders are accusing Jesus because they want to discredit Him. He didn't give them the praise that they felt that was due to them. He instead exposes their hypocrisy. He's a threat to the monster inside that they've produced. He's a threat to their approbation lust. He's a threat to their lust for the people to praise Him, so they must attack Him. They must eliminate the threat so that they can get back to feeding the monster, so that they can have the crowds praise them. But Jesus has come in and exposed their hypocrisy to the crowds. So they must attack Jesus. They must eliminate the threat to their approbation lust. They must discredit Him. That's why they accuse Him here in chapter 5 of Sabbath violation and blasphemy. The mode of operation of the person who has an inflated view of self is if you don't give them the praise that they believe that they deserve, then they attack you, at least personally, because they have to discredit you in order to protect their lust, in order to protect their approval lust, in order to protect their approbation lust. Here's where Jesus' mind-reading comes into play. The religious leaders believe that Jesus thinks and reasons like them. Here's what I mean by that. The religious leaders think that Jesus operates on approbation lust just like them. And so the way the the approbation lust guy operates is someone doesn't give him the credit that he thinks he's due, he's got to attack that person to discredit him so that he can protect the, the beast, so that he can keep getting the praise of men. They say Jesus, they think, Jesus is reading their minds, we'll see that in a moment, 
they think that's how you're operating, Jesus. That's why you're accusing us of all these offenses before God, of not knowing God's word, of not, uh, not hearing God's voice, not, not appreciating God's word. You're accusing us because you want to discredit us because we haven't accepted you because we've rejected you. What the religious leaders are doing is really they are projecting onto Jesus their own approbation lust that motivated them that drove them in everything they did. Jesus reads their minds and he says, you got it all wrong. Look at verse 42. It reads like this. But I know you, Jesus says, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows their motivations. They don't love God as God has commanded them to do. These are the teachers of the law. These are the religious teachers in Israel, and they violate the most important of all the commandments. This is a commandment that we saw at the 930 message this morning, Matthew 22, verses 36 and 38, when one of the Pharisaic experts in the law asked Jesus this, Teacher, which is the greatest, the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. We are to love God because God first loved us. Us. 1 John 4.19 But the religious leaders who stand before Jesus indicted by Him when they were indicting Him, He flips the script. They don't love God. They love themselves more than God. They're disinterested in God. Sure, 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 sure. They spoke God's name all the time. You see the great irony? They wouldn't speak Yod, He, Vav, He, the four consonants, the sacred tetragrammaton, right? Translated sometimes Yehovah, sometimes Yahweh. I think Yahweh is the better pronunciation. They wouldn't even speak that. And instead, they say Adonai. So when they came to those four consonants in the Hebrew, in Hebrew, you, you, uh, it's a language of only consonants. And so in the Middle Ages, the, the Masoretic scribes took the text and they put vowel points, little dots and, and other figures on each, continent, on each consonant. And so those four consonants, those four letters they would put the vowel points for Adonai. Adonai means Lord. So when they were reading the text, they wouldn't pronounce Yahweh. They'd pronounce Adonai because the vowel points would cue them to, to say Adonai because they wouldn't even speak the name. Right? You shall not take the Lord's name in vain from the Ten Commandments. Well, how do we not take His name in vain? We don't even speak His name. That's how we guarantee we won't take His name in vain. We won't even say it but we will disrespect him in a million other ways. So the religious leaders spoke God's name all the time. They referred to God's law all the time, but what they were doing is they were using those to stroke their pride so that the people would say, you sure are righteous, Mr. Pharisee. You sure are holy. You sure are godly. They didn't love God. They used God's name and God's law to prop up their pride. They loved the praise of people, not the praise of God. They loved themselves more than they loved God. So it's understandable. It's logical that they rejected God's messenger. Jesus' messenger with a capital M. Look at verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You see, God has hardwired us. He's designed us to seek him. We are the only part of God's creation that is described as being made in the image of God. Nothing else. Now, angels have self-consciousness. Angels have volition. But the scripture doesn't say that angels are created in the image of God. It says we're. We're the only ones that are described as being created in the image of God. And as His image bearers, we are designed by God to reflect His glory, to praise Him and to seek Him. 
Not because God is like the Pharisees. Not because God is prideful. Right? The, the unbelieving world says, what? God made us to glorify Him? That seems arrogant. It's not arrogant. It's honest. Because He alone is worthy. God alone is great. And in an interest of honesty, He declares that He alone is worthy. And when we submit to Him in humility, we recognize the wonder of glorifying Him. In verse 43, Jesus is providing a grave, grave, grave warning of what happens when someone rejects God's messenger. Messenger, capital M, Jesus Himself. If we don't follow Jesus, we'll follow someone else. That is a given or something else. And we create a vacuum of unbelief in our hearts, in our souls. Have you ever heard of the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum? It's an old phrase, actually, from ancient Greece. And it describes nature where if there's an empty space in nature, it gets filled by something. Air, for example. Or water. Right? When the the largest rain event in recorded North American history hit Houston in 2017, Hurricane Harvey, 60 inches of rain hit Houston in four days. Every empty space in the path of the water was filled. Every void, every empty space, the water made its way into. That's why when you drove up and down streets of subdivisions in Houston, you saw miles of debris. Everybody took all their debris, all this carpet and sheetrock, and, and you drove up and down the street and you'd see next to the curb, 10 feet high of just debris in front of every single house. And it took months for the garbage trucks to clean it because nature abhors a vacuum. When there's an empty space, it gets filled. Well, it's the same way with you and me. We empty our mind Empty your mind, the East, Eastern religious say, religi- the religions say. Don't do that. When you open up a void, false teaching floods in. Doctrines of demons flood in. The garbage of the ways of the world flood in. You create a vacuum in your soul, a vacuum of unbelief, and it is like a magnet that draws false teaching into it. Jesus' apostles also warned about the vacuum of unbelief. Ephesians 4.17. Here we have the apostle Paul saying this. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. He's repeating what the Lord taught. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind Futility in the Greek is the Greek word mataiotes. Mataiotes, and it is a dark, ominous word. It means emptiness, purposelessness, futility. The apostle Peter says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things such as silver and gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. Here, Peter uses the adjective form of mataiotes. And this is matayas, being empty, being useless, being void of truth. If we don't have Christ, then there is a void, a vacuum in our lives, in our hearts. And the vacuum is immediately filled by the ways of the world, by the false teachings of the world. Paul uses the verb form of Mataiotes in Romans chapter 1. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Here we find a very disturbing description of what happens when there is a vacuum of unbelief. Romans 1 is eerily similar to the United States of America. Romans 1 is, in a very scary way, similar to our culture, and for that matter, all of Western civilization, at least as Western civilization is today. Romans 1, verse 21. 
reads like this. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. There's our word again. This is the verb form of matayotes. This is matayao, which means to make something empty or worthless or without purpose. And then we get a horrible description of what happens when you have a vacuum of unbelief. Keep reading verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their persons the due penalty of their error. Does this not fit your country? which I hate to admit. Actually, we're worse than this. Right? L-G-B-T-Q-I-A plus. Well, Paul's only describing three of the initials. Right? He's not describing the T, the Q, the I, the plus. The plus means we got a lot more coming. That's what the plus means. We're worse than this because we have created a vacuum of the soul. And nature abhors a vacuum. We're sucking in doctrines of demons. God has designed His image bearers to seek Him, His truth, His ways, His glory. And when we reject God by rejecting His Christ, the default is always mataiotes, emptiness, vanity, purposelessness, futility. And people try and fill the void with anything, anything but God. And so the garbage of the world, of the world floods in. God alone, as I said before, God alone is great. He alone can fill our hearts. Everything else is a cheap counterfeit. Blaise Pascal, that French mathematician from the 17th century, he was a mathematician, a philosopher, a a theologian. We could use a philosopher like this. He says, There is a great God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which only God can fill through His Son, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine a philosopher saying that at University of Texas or Harvard? No. He'd be fired immediately. Only the ones with great courage say that. Well, let's get back to our passage, verse 44 of chapter 5. We read, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? As we saw earlier, Jesus condemns the religious leaders for being more interested in receiving glory from each other, glory from men, praise from men, rather than from God. You see, what's unique about humanity in all of God's creation is that we can seek and receive the glory of God. This is part of being made in the image of God. Nothing else in creation is like this, right? The beautiful mountains of Montana, the plains of of the Midwest, the the beautiful hills of the hill country, the the, um, clear blue rivers of Montana, the, the, the elk, the deer, the beautiful bobcat. We saw a bobcat not long ago. None of those are equipped to seek the praise of God, nor to receive the praise of God. Now, it's true that nature does reveal our need to praise God because nature reveals the awesome creative works of God, but nature is wholly unable 
to praise God or to receive God's praise or even to seek God's praise. We are very different. Nature can't make moral decisions, right? The bobcat cannot make a moral decision. Doesn't have the ability because he's not made in the image of God. We uniquely have that ability. The Word of God is clear that we are to seek God's approval. We're to seek God's praise. This is the thing that is fascinating to me. God is going to say, I praise you. The God of the universe is going to praise you and me. Let me show you what I mean. John 12, verse 42 here we read, nevertheless, many, of, many even of the rulers, the rulers there are the religious rulers, believed in Him. This is, a, this is not Jesus speaking. This is John giving a description of how many of the religious leaders will turn to believe in Him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men. That's the same Greek word we saw for glory. The doxa of men. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God You see, we're to seek God's approval in everything that we say and do and think. It's not that receiving approval from people is bad. You know, I mean, the the teacher gives an A to the student. The student should think, great, I love that. Or your boss says, good work. That's great. It should make you feel good. Nothing wrong with that. Where it goes wrong is when the person seeks the praise of people over the praise of God, instead of or superior to the praise of God, when we make the praise of people more important to us than the praise of God. You see, people's priorities are often based on the world's standards, or if you prefer, human viewpoint, than being based on God's standards, divine viewpoint. You see, there's a name that the Scripture gives for something like that. For making something more important than God. There's a name for that in the Scripture. Anybody know what the name is? Idolatry. Idolatry. Repent. Repent. Confess the sin of idolatry before your God when you are more important, or when you are more interested in the praise of people than you are in the praise of God. That is idolatry. Plain and simple. I mean, we can put lipstick on the pig and call it something else, but it's a pig. It's idolatry. Confess the sin and run from it. Let me show you a few more passages that make clear that we are to seek the praise of God. 2 Corinthians 10.18 For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. How do we receive the Lord's commendation, His praise? There's only one way. Hebrews 11.6, by faith. Without faith, it is imp- impossible to please God. Look at 1 Corinthians 4.5. Therefore, I do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, everything that you thought, everything that you did in secret, you thought it was in secret, but the Lord was watching everything. He's the accountant keeping track of everything. You thought no one knew about that. That will come to light. Look at the phrase there. Hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Each man's praise will come to him from God. If I'm reading this correctly, every believer will receive some praise from God at the judgment. Every single one of us, God will say, I don't know what the words are going to be. At a girl, at a boy, I mean, it's probably more formal than that, of course, but it's going to be praise from God, and, that, and there will be blessing associated with that praise. Every single believer. And why do I say that? Because... Faith pleases God. And you've trusted, if you've trusted in Christ, which is to say you've exercised faith in Christ, you've pleased God by the mere act of salvation, of trusting in Him. Because in salvation you get zero. Zero credit. Nada. Nothing of credit. 
by faith, by, by relying on Him, He gets all the praise. And so you please Him. in the, That's the first way to please God. That's the first event of pleasing God, is in salvation. And so every believer, even the believer that said, you know what, God, I'm saved, I got it, and I'll see you in heaven. I'm going to go live the way I want to live. And they live their whole life in the Thule's. Right? Independent of God. Well, that believer is going to receive at least some praise from God. But the believer who obeyed God did the first act that, that, that honors God, that pleases God, salvation, and then the next day, and the next day, and the next month, and the next year, and the next year, and the next decade, and the next decade, walks consistently with, consistently with God. Not perfectly with God because we're all sinners, but consistently with God then that believer is going to receive exponentially more praise and exponentially more blessing. And the, the believer who simply accepted salvation, which is good. I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad. The believer who accepted salvation and then says, God, I'll see you in heaven. I'm going to live the way that I'm going to live. The rest of their life, God's going to be taking the belt out and whipping them. And it's going to be painful. So, Please don't misunderstand. When I, when I describe this, I'm not encouraging sin by any means. Everybody's going to get their comeuppance. It's just the believer is, has been declared righteous. And so in salvation, that person is guaranteed admittance into heaven. And so God will praise them for that act of salvation. That act of salvation, that act of faith, which God saves, but He uses our faith to save, that act of Faith produces at least one grape, at least one fruit, because God's going to praise him. But we're called to be walking consistently daily. Not only one act of faith, salvation, but every day thereafter. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's salvation, by grace, through faith. But we can't forget the next verse, Ephesians 2.10. We are His workmanship, created for good works. That's after you're saved. My point is that we are to be seeking God's praise, and then He is going to praise you in eternity. We've seen two major principles in verses 41 through 44. We've seen, number one, to beware of the vacuum of unbelief. God has designed you and me to seek Him through faith. If you refuse, you will open up a vacuum in your heart, a vacuum in your soul, and the garbage of the world will flood in. The second principle that we've seen is that we are to seek the approval of God, not of men. It's okay to receive the approval of men, but that's not your priority. Your priority is to, is to seek the approval of the living God. His approval is just and righteous, and His approval will be forever. When somebody comes up and says, You're, you did this good, you did this good, you know, that, that, that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. But that approval's over. That person's gone. The person who you're going to live with forever, God, when He gives you approval, that pr approval is going to be for eternity. Look at verse 45. We're going to go a little further than I thought we initially were. Look at verse 45 of chapter 5. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. The religious leaders trusted in Moses. They trusted in what he wrote in the Pentateuch. You know, the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the law. They refer to that as the Torah. What's fascinating here is that Jesus says Moses wrote the law. That's what he's communicating. And so you have these professors in university or in seminary, some seminaries, not, not all of them. Hmm, I'm not sure Moses wrote all of those books. All we have to do is follow Jesus' words. We just have to believe Jesus' word. And so with respect to the Pentateuch, Moses wrote it. Now, he didn't write the, the, the end of it where it says Moses died. Obviously, he didn't write that part. So someone added a tale. 
but that was done in the inspiration of the Spirit. The point is that they did not trust Jesus. They trusted Moses. Yet Moses and the law pointed to Jesus. Genesis 3.15, the very beginning of the law. Back in Genesis 3, there God said, I will put enmity between you. This is right after the fall. This is right after Adam and Eve have sinned. This is the punishment phase from God. God says, he's speaking to the serpent here. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There are many things packed in this verse and they all point to Christ and what Christ will do. The first part that we see here is enmity, conflict between you and the woman, between the serpent, which ultimately is the devil. The devil was controlling whatever that snake that was. Was it a rattler? Was it a boa? I don't know what it was. But the devil was controlling it. And so this part of the curse is referred to, or is, Jesus, is God referring to the devil, saying there's going to be enmity, enmity between conflict, between the devil and humanity, perpetual conflict. And most of us, la, 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 la. We just kind of butterfly along, clueless, totally clueless to the warfare that we're engaged in. It's like the, the paraphrase from the old theologian. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was persuading the world that he doesn't exist. And so sadly, many Christians are utterly ignorant of the warfare that we're engaged in with the devil himself that was prophesied back in Genesis 3. Look at the next part of this prophecy. An enmity between your seed and her seed. We saw this in the 930 not that long ago. The followers of the devil are the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is Christ and the followers of Christ. Christ was born of a woman, right? He's, he was born of Mary, not of Joseph. It was a virgin birth. He's the seed of the woman. And those who follow him are so identified with his destiny, with Christ's destiny, that they are included in the concept of being the seed of the woman. They're forever attached to his destiny. And so you have the seed of the serpent. Remember what Jesus says, we'll study it when we get to John 8. He described the religious leaders as the offspring of the devil. He said, you are like your father, the devil. The seed of the serpent are the followers of the devil. The seed of the woman is Christ and the followers of Christ. Jesus is saying, Moses wrote about me. And you religious leaders who hang your hat on Moses or followers of Moses. We love Moses. We have our hope in Moses. Moses pointed to me, is, G is what Jesus was saying. So let's finish here in, in Genesis 3.15. And you see this language about, he shall bruise you on the, heel, on the head, God says, speaking to the serpent and ultimately to the devil, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So... You hit someone on the head, that can be a fatal wound. You hit someone on the heel, it's a temporary wound. So the, the bruising of the heel was the temporary death of Jesus. He was dead for three days and then risen. And so when Jesus died on the cross, the devil bruised him on the heel, but Jesus bruised him on the head. It was checkmate for the devil. The what happened on the cross is that Jesus paid for the sins of humanity and then Christ raises him from the dead. And so Jesus lived a perfect life of righteousness, a perfect life of obedience to God. And he opened the life gate so that all may enter through faith. And he did it on the cross when the devil was bruising the heel of, De of, of Jesus. When he thought the devil thought he was winning by moving events so that Jesus would be killed, Jesus, who was in complete control, always, was engaging in checkmate on the devil because the very death that the devil was, was trying to cause of Jesus that he actually caused because Jesus really died, in fact, that was victory. That was that which Jesus hit on the head 
of the serpent because through Christ's work on the cross, he opens up the gate wide for all to come in only through him, not through any other way, not through Muhammad, not through Buddha, not through atheism, not through wokeism, not through any of those things. So, of course, Moses wrote about Jesus. Of course. How about Genesis 49.10, which Moses wrote also, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This was a prophecy that Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah. The prophecy pointed to Jesus, but the religious leaders missed it. How about Deuteronomy 18, 15? Yahweh, your God, the Lord your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is speaking here. A prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Peter says in that sermon in Acts 3, 22, that verse was referring to Jesus as the prophet who would come, that the people should listen to. But the religious leaders missed it because they worshipped Moses and the law, not Jesus, not God. One final verse in the Pentateuch that Moses wrote. This is a, this is a verse in Exodus 12, verses 3 through 5 where Yahweh is speaking to Moses and Aaron. He says, speak to all the congregation of Israel. This is the tenth of the the punishments, the plagues that God sent to the Egyptians. This is the final one, the death of the firstborn. And he says, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the tenth of this month, they are each to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. Should, should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be unblemished. You see how it shifts? It's a lamb. Then it's the lamb. Then it's your lamb. And your lamb is to be unblemished blemished an unblemished male a year old you may take it from the sheep or the goats without spot without blemish what does john say in john chapter 1 behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world spotless without blemish of course moses pointed to jesus but the pharisees the sadducees the religious leaders they missed it. And so in verse 45, Jesus is saying that on judgment day, Moses will be the district attorney. Moses will be the prosecutor who stands up and accuses you. Moses is not the judge. Remember, the Father has delegated to Jesus all judgment. All judgment. All judgment. The Father has given to Jesus Jesus sits on the throne. Just read the, the, the end of Revelation 20. It'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Jesus sits on the great white throne where all unbelievers will stand. That's what you do when you stand before, when you're before a judge. You stand. The bailiff makes you stand up when the verdict is read. Because the great white throne judgment is the judgment of all unbelievers. And it says heaven and earth are gone. They've passed away. Because he's destroyed them. There's no place for them to hide. And what Jesus is saying in verse 45 is that Moses will stand up and accuse that generation who put their hope in Moses. Because Moses will say, it wasn't me. I pointed to Jesus. Moses will be the prosecutor. Moses will say, you twisted what I wrote. Moses will say, the, the, the law that I wrote pointed to the only one who could fulfill it. Jesus, you perverted it into a system of works to stroke your pride. Look at verse 47 as we close this morning. But if you do not believe his writings, Moses' writings, how will you believe my words, Jesus says? The Pentateuch pointed to Jesus. The religious leaders didn't believe that. In their pride, 
they thought it pointed to them. They thought the Pentateuch pointed to them. And what I mean by that is, they thought the Pentateuch showed them the way of a works-based salvation. The Pentateuch, the law, has all these provisions in it. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And all the provisions of the law were designed to communicate to the Israelites, I can't do this. I can't do this. Every time I bring a goat to the priest and and he sacrifices, it's this bloody event. It's because of that sin that I committed. And the next year I do the same thing. And next month I do the same thing. I, I can't do this. And Jesus says, ding, ding, ding. Or, or, or in that context, uh, Yahweh hasn't come in the flesh, so he's Yahweh. Yahweh says, you got it. You need me. Trust in me. Remember, salvation's always the same. In the Old Testament, New Testament, the way of salvation's always the same. Abraham believed in Yahweh and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. We believe in Yahweh, it's just Yahweh's now in the flesh. And so the Old Testament, the law, what Moses wrote, was designed to point the people to their need to trust in one who was more righteous than them. But the Pharisees pervert it, and the Pharisees say, no, 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 wait a second. We got all these rules here. I think I'm going to add a few more rules, and I want y'all to know that I'm pretty righteous. Because I'm going to follow those rules, and you have to also. Because the Pharisees twisted the law. That's why they were blind to the reality that the law, that the Pentateuch pointed to Jesus. They didn't believe Moses' writings, which pointed to the need to trust in God's righteousness for salvation. So it makes sense. It's logical that they refused to believe in God in the flesh who was standing before them. If there's anyone here today without Christ, without hope, and without eternal, eternal life, we want you to know that God loves you. God loves you. He loves His enemies. You are the enemy of God. I, I, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. That's just what it says. It says we're all the enemies of God before we come to Christ. We think we're so impressive. You are not impressive to God. You're a sinner, and God is utterly offended at sin. His essence, His righteousness demands that He condemn it, and you are identified as a sinner. People talk about my identity, my identity. That is your identity, the enemy of God, if you have not come to Christ. And yet God loves His enemies. You see, God came to die for you. He didn't send some angel from some unknown part of the universe to do the work of salvation. He said, that's my job. Because I love you. I give it all for you. He gave his life for you. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. Today's the day. If you have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, you are on the death train, marching, rolling to the lake of fire, the place that the end of Revelation describes as torments day and night. You say, I'm not going to believe in a God like that. I'm not going to believe in a God who would cast people into hell. I'm not going to believe in a God who Jesus describes as will send people to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the way Jesus describes it. Jesus. Let the sweet Jesus, the sweet, cuddly Jesus that Hollywood wants to present to you. Was he meek and mild? Yes, he was. But he's also the warrior king. And we see that in the book of Revelation. That Jesus described the lake of fire or the place, the eternal destiny of the unbeliever as the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he says, I love you. I don't want you to go there. I can't blow off your sin because I'm righteous. I love you. And if you will trust in me, I will pay for your sins. I've paid for your sins on the cross. You say, I'm not going to believe in a God who would send people to hell. You have that prerogative for now, not forever. There's a time when that prerogative will be gone because God will remove that option from you. 
you will believe in that God, either now or later. So today is the day of salvation. All you have to do is believe. When the Philippian jailer said to the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's it. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Please, let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you as your children, fallen, broken sinners, in awe and wonder of your great grace, of your great love, We thank you that you make your word clear to us. We ask that you help us seek you. We ask that you give us an appetite for your praise, not for the praise of men. And we pray these things in the name of his majesty, the King of the kings and Lord of the lords, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.